Amen. In just a second here, I'm going to show you a little something that was a trick that uh, for about, it was over 20 years, for more than 20 years, there was a professor at University of Pennsylvania School of Law, Ivy League school, big fancy uh, law school there. Uh, Edwin Keedy was his name, Professor Edwin R. Keedy. He would start his class at the beginning of every year with the new students, the brand new law students. He would start class and he would put this equation on the board here. And he would start out by putting a four and a two and a line. And then he would look at his class and he would say, so what's the solution? You don't have to answer it. You can. You probably get it wrong like the students got it wrong. One of his students later on was writing about this incident and what happened. He said this, an eager novice called out six but he was waved aside quickly. A second scholar, an, er, an eager young law student, volunteered too. But the professor's restless glance passed on. And then there was this long moment silence while the tension that was generated on the platform spread from mind to mind, he says. And then eight hovered in the collective consciousness and was voiced confidently by several men in the rear. It was rejected with a quick, almost angry shake of the head. So there was this nervous sort of feeling uh, in, in the students. So is this what we came to law school for? And so he would ask them, what is the problem? And they would compound their earlier wrong answers by saying addition, subtraction, multiplication. And he would declare triumphantly, all of you failed to ask the key question. What is the problem? And then he said, ladies and gentlemen, unless you know exactly what the problem is, you cannot possibly give the right solution. Unless you know exactly what the problem is, you cannot possibly give the right solution. He was wiser than he knew, not just about things of law or math, of course, but there's spiritual truth there we're going to unpack today. If you don't know the problem, you cannot find the solution. How many times have we in our own lives, how many times have you, how many times have I, found ourselves belting out answers and seeking solutions without first knowing the problem? I know I've done that because I'm a typical male. <laughs> and your typical male is overconfidently sure of his answers. At least early on, like first year law school students would be. Giving answers in confidence without knowing what the problem is is like polishing brass on a ship. It's, it's, it's pointless on a ship that's sinking. In our eagerness to fix things, we often miss the real solution, the real problem. I know this happened for me many times in ministry. In local church ministry, I'll be talking with somebody, and um, they'll p potentially be giving me some, some real important things going on in their lives, sharing some heart issues, telling me about their, their problems, and, uh, and I'll be listening intently in those conversations, and, and, I'm, and I'm almost sure I've got it figured out. Like, I'm almost sure that, that I've been listening intently. I, I know where they're headed. I've seen this before, and... Uh, and, and, and so I will uh, graciously, uh, I'm thinking, uh, helpfully uh, give my wisdom as a helpful servant uh, to this person. 
and uh, only to have them <laughs> sometimes respond with, actually, Scott, that's not really the problem. At which point you just have to, you know, say, I, I'm sorry, I'll just stop talking, and uh, you can share with me your solution. You ever, you ever do that? Provide solutions without really knowing the problem for people? You have that in your own life at times? Maybe not just somebody else's life, but, but you in your own life, misdiagnosing the solution? And so you attack the problem as if you know what you're doing, and then later on you find you are back where you were before. No, I've never, of course I've never done that. No. We see this kind of, this kind of uh, phenomenon operating in the life of Jacob here in Genesis. This is a guy who's been struggling from, from literally day one. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that, uh, that coming out of the womb, this guy Jacob was grabbing his brother's heel. His name means he grabs the heel. He was grabbing his brother Esau's heel, and he never let go. He weaseled away his brother's birthright for a measly bowl of soup. He deceitfully stole his brother's blessing from their father Jacob. He schemed to get the best of his father-in-law Laban's livestock. He'd been struggling his whole life. And here we come to the part in Genesis where he's struggling with God in ways he hadn't been realizing before was always the case. Here we go again in chapter 32 with Jacob. We pick up at verse 1 in Genesis, the 32nd chapter. It says this, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, remember that that Jacob, we talked about this last week, he's coming off of 20 years of grueling labor with his father-in-law Laban. Remember last week we said that before God can use you, he has to break you. We talked about that last week. And and that process of being broken uh, began to happen for Jacob with that 20 years of work and labor for uh, Rachel and for Leah. And so here he is. I think finally we're going to see today he's actually finally really, really broken. (laughs) He finally gives in. He finally gives up the fight. So when verse 1 says Jacob went on his way, there in verse 1, it's because Jacob wanted to go on his way. He wanted to move on. He couldn't wait to get away from his father Laban. In the previous chapter, verse 49, in uh, Genesis, the 31st chapter, verse 49, it says, The Lord watch between you and me. This is Laban speaking. The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. In other words, this isn't really like a bless you, go your way. This is like a please be out of my sight. This is sort of a get out of my sight for good. This is like, I'll agree, if you don't cross this line, I won't cross that line. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. And so, so Jacob is ready to leave. And so he's on his way. He's supposed to be going back to Bethel. Uh, we'll see where he ends up here. Jacob is motivated to move on at the beginning of chapter 32. Now notice that Jacob is met by angels. It says, the angels of God met him. That's just like chapter 28 we studied when Tommy talked about the ladder with the ascending and descending angels. This reminds him here of the ladder in his dream in chapter 28. And that indicates for us the presence of God. Which is why he says there, hey, this is God's camp. It's like a revelation again from him. He's saying, wow, this is where God lives. But I thought God lived there and, and now he lives here. And so he's saying this is... This is like two places where God lives. 
first at Bethel, where he says, surely God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. And now he says, wait, angels are here, and so the presence of God is here. This is God's camp too, so he calls it two camps. Mahanaim, two camps, or two places where God's presence lives. He was beginning to understand that God doesn't just live in one place. He's everywhere. This was news for Jacob. It's, it's easy for us to say because we've been told that from day one. and we, We've read all of the scriptures and we, we have that to take for granted. But this was new for Jacob. This was brand new that the presence of God could be in more than one place. Not like an idol that that, 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 that world and that culture would store and keep for themselves as a place where that God lived. You see, they're coming out of that culture. And so now he's understanding that God is not like that idol. He's everywhere. So the presence of God is with him, indicated by the angels there. Now, even though he's beginning to understand, he's beginning to understand that God's presence is everywhere, we know he still doesn't quite get it because he continues to feel the need to manipulate the situation, which we'll see play out in his reconciliation with Esau. Look at how this plays out with his brother Esau. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. By the way, Mount Seir was far to the southeast of where Jacob was, so it took a special trip for him to go. In other words, Jacob is seeking out reconciliation with his brother. See, he's beginning to understand that he's been, he's been solving his problems with the wrong kind of solutions. And so he's beginning to do this the right way. He wants to be motivated by God's will to reconcile with his brother. So he's beginning to, uh, to get it. But he still has some sort of misdiagnosis of his problems going on. He thinks, he thinks, my, my brother Esau, his last words to me were, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> his last words were, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to kill you. And so, of course, he's fearful for what might happen. And he thinks, still in his worldly, fleshly way, note that word, it's where we're headed today, in his flesh, he still thinks, I'll just appease my brother. I'll just, I'll just make him happy with enough gifts. So read on verse 4. He instructs his messengers, thus shall you say to my lord Esau. Notice he calls him my lord. It's, it's a sort of a, a humble way of describing it. It's, it's a deferential kind of description. It's exactly the backwards way that uh, the younger was supposed to serve the older uh, that was talked about earlier in Genesis 25 and 7. So this is seven times in the account where he says, my Lord, or I am your servant to his brother, to appease him. Moving on. Thus says your servant Jacob. This is verse 4. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. This is his messenger speaking to Esau. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So we see his intentions beginning to be made known here. And he's listed all of these animals, one after another, after another, after another, as a hint that, hey, hey Esau, presents are coming, presents are coming. So verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau. We saw him, we found him. And he is coming to meet you. <laughs> he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. 400 men is the standard size of the militia at the time. One rank of a militia in the day 
is 400 men. So Jacob knows clearly, at least he thinks, what's going on. So verse 7, that makes him afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And even though he's greatly afraid, which he should be, since of Esau's last words were murderous and intent, and even though he thinks He's got the problem. He's misdiagnosed it still. He thinks he has to pay off his brother. He thinks he needs to be afraid. But what he does next is indicative that he's beginning to get it right. He's diagnosing the problems more accurately here. Look at this. He, he prays, verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He's invoking God by remembering the covenant that his fathers and God had made and that God made with him. O Lord, this is the first time Jacob addresses God in that kind of a personal way. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of all the deeds, of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Jacob's beginning to understand who he really is. That he's a servant. That his weakness in the flesh, that he has for so long manipulated to his advantage, that his weakness in the flesh is actually strength in God. Don't miss that, it's where we're headed. Weakness in the flesh is actually strength in God. He's starting to sound like a man. He's starting to sound like a man who understands that his fleshly weakness is actually strength in God. It's a backwards way to think about it. From everything we've been taught from day one, isn't it? But that's how the Lord works. With only my staff, he says, he continues to pray after his his humility here. With only my staff, I crossed the Jordan. And now I've become two camps, meaning I have a lot, enough for two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. We're seeing a little bit of honesty finally out of this, this schemer Jacob. A little bit of honesty underneath all of his outward scheming and fleshly manipulation. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So, so he's driven both by fear of Esau, fear of man, and some humble fear of God. At the same time here, he keeps plugging away with his sort of man-made fleshly solution to appease his brother. He just prayed. He just humbly asked for God's leading, and yet I'm going to continue with my project. <laughs> so he sends five droves of livestock, verse 18. Five droves of livestock, a total of 550 animals, and the servants say this, 18, they belong to your servant, Jacob. This is them talking to Esau. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And he's coming right behind me. Or at least they say he is. Because fear gets the best of him again and he stays overnight. Verse 20. I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. You can see he's sort of tortured both directions here. He's beginning to get it, but he's still sort of misdiagnosing the problem. He prays for for God's wisdom. And then, of course, in the manner of Jacob the schemer, he marches forward with his own plans. It's like what's called the law of the hammer. The law of the hammer that says that if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. If all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Jacob's relationship with God, where God is present everywhere, is the new tool Jacob still doesn't quite know how to use. He's still trying to fix things his own way, in the flesh. We see that conflict still here going on. More about that later. Graciously, God still has Jacob's back, as we'll see here in the rest of chapter 32. You see, reconciliation with his brother Esau wasn't going to happen if reconciliation with God didn't also happen. Jacob didn't know this, but God was going to answer his prayer (laughs) right here the night before he goes to to, uh, meet Esau. Not necessarily in the way that Jacob or anybody would think of it, but he answered Jacob's prayer in verses 9 to 12, but not in the way that Jacob assumed. Jacob still likely was thinking of going along with his plan of presenting to Esau, buying him off, paying him off, that that was what was needed to appease him and to bring this sort of reconciliation. But that's misdiagnosis of the problem again. (laughs) You don't buy somebody's relationship. That's not going to do a whole lot for real reconciliation. Many of us have been manipulated in relationships because of that kind of thing. We know how that doesn't work. Again, misdiagnosis of the problem wasn't going to be taken care of with 550 animals the problem wouldn't be fixed by fleshly tools don't miss that because it's where we're headed the problem cannot be fixed by fleshly tools first corinthians 15 says flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of god So Jacob first had to be right with God before he could be right with Esau. He had to be right vertically before he could be right horizontally. We get that backwards constantly, don't we? We think we need to be right with everybody horizontally. I'll take care of that part eventually. That part later. You can't have real reconciliation horizontally if you don't have it vertically. So Jacob first had to be right with God before he could be right with Esau. Look at verse 22 here in chapter 32. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and and sent them across the stream. This is everything he had left that he hadn't sent. He took them and sent them across the street and everything else that he had across the stream. This stream, Jabbok, is a, is a tributary off of, uh, from your perspective, a tributary off of the Jordan River here. And uh, apparently it's a pretty fast, uh, fast river, not exactly a stream. It's not a little creek in your backyard. Uh, so it would have been a bit of a pain to get them over. And so obviously his fear is still driving him. A little precautionary measure by uh, Jacob. Read on verse 24. Jacob was left alone. 
and a man, a nameless, faceless, faceless assailant, wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. When he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and in other words, Jacob's not going to give in easily. No one should be surprised if you've been following in Genesis. He's a stubborn dude. He's a stubborn dude who's going to make his way happen at all possible, if at all possible. He was a forceful man. Might have gone all night long, we don't know. Potentially six, seven hours. But finally, the nameless and the faceless assailant here, the attacker, verse 25, touched his hip socket. He just, he just touches it. That's a hint of some supernatural power, some divinity in this faceless attacker. He touched the hip socket of Jacob, and Jacob's hip, hip was, was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. In other words, he, he's now wrestling still with this nameless, faceless attacker with a limp. You know, not being successful, obviously, but, but he's still going. He, the attacker, verse 26, he, the attacker, said to him, said to Jacob, let me go, for the day has broken. <laughs> Funny, I thought you attacked me. Uh, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's another hint at the opponent's divinity. Because Jacob realizes who this is. He realizes what's going on here. He's beginning to get a clear picture. He's beginning to diagnose the problem accurately. So, so not out of pride, but, but out of his brokenness, he asks for a blessing. Hosea 12.4 interprets this verse and says, He, that's Jacob, strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He wept and sought his favor. At this point, Jacob finally is at the end of himself, helpless, limping, asking, I give up, just, just bless me and let me go. Jacob's plea here is not, not a prideful one, it, it's, it's a brokenness kind of plea. It's an I cannot keep doing this as I've done it kind of plea. The attacker said to him, verse 27, what is your name? And he said, almost sounds like an admission of guilt, and he said, Jacob, deceiver. My name is I deceive. The attacker said back to Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. You are no longer the deceiver, the struggler. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. To name something is to characterize it. To name something is to characterize it, to give it a name for its character. The name Israel most literally means God fights, God struggles. And in the context of this passage here, it probably means he strives with God. Jacob strives with God. God. His new name announced his new character. He goes from being a deceiver Jacob to having God fight for him. With him. Which means, don't miss this, Jacob's prevailing isn't a physical one. You see, we read that passage and we think, he prevailed over like God? 
No, that's not what's happening here at all. <laughs> this isn't about a physical prevailing. Not at all. That's flesh. That's a physical prevailing kind of thinking. Jacob's prevailing isn't physical, but it's a spiritual prevailing. He didn't out-wrestle the angel. The angel let him stay in the fight. Let's just be honest. He touched his socket, boom, he's done. He prevailed because now he was a broken man who walked with a limp to remind him of his dependence upon God. He now fights with God as an ally in life. And he finally sees this wrestling. Jacob understands that this wrestling was a parable for his whole life. He wrestled with his brother, his father, his father-in-law, and now with God. Finally. Finally. Now he was a broken man who fights with God alongside. And in verse 30, he announces his victory, his, his brokenness that brought freedom from previous struggles. He said, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I think Jacob kept attacking the problems of his life with the same hammer because he saw everything as a nail. The, the, the problems weren't lack of resources. But for Jacob, a lack of understanding that God alone was his most important need. We misdiagnose that simple problem in so many areas of our life. We often misdiagnose the problems of our life, thinking that our, our struggles are external, circumstantial, flesh, worldly kinds of problems. We, we think to ourselves, if, if only I could make that person like me. How many of us have spent lots of time and energy trying to get somebody to like you? If only I could make that person like me, then I'd be happy. If only I could get rid of that toxic relationship, then, then I could find some time to serve. If only I could get out of debt, then I'd be content, then I'll start giving to the Lord. If only I could finish school, get a job, get married, have kids, own a house, clean the house, lose some weight, then, then I'll get my relationship with God right, then. Then I'll be ready. All of that, of course, hogwash. Because those things, those circumstances, are not the problem at all. No fleshly circumstance is the problem. That's misdiagnosing the problem, that's misunderstanding the struggle, that's misnaming what your life is is really about. So, so what can we learn from Jacob? Stop misdiagnosing problems and seek the Lord's face first. Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but against rulers, the authorities, against the comic powers, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, your problem with your spouse, your child, your family, your friend, and you isn't going to be fixed with better resources. It won't happen with more money or more time or more energy. It will only be fixed when your relationship with God is fundamentally the most important thing in your entire life. The problem is always, always a spiritual battle. Everything else is a manifestation of that. Everything else comes out of that first and foremost struggle. So stop misnaming, stop misdiagnosing. If you're going to strive, if you're going to struggle, then do battle that is spiritual battle. Don't misunderstand the struggle. This whole existence isn't about you prevailing over your circumstances with better resources. It's about prevailing over your circumstances with God alongside in your struggle. Because life is a spiritual battle, so stop fighting spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. We've, we've developed systems in our relationships with one another that, that use fleshly tools to do battle. We've developed expectations of one another that have, that have everything to do with fighting fleshly battles. A marriage does not become unified around enough time for vacation or activities based on the kids. But only when two people are madly in love with Jesus Christ first and then each other and then their kids second. Our lives do not become content or satisfying when we have achieved a certain educational level or vocational status or settledness about our security. Those are smoke screens. That's misdiagnosed problems. We can come content when we know full well that God's presence is with us at every moment like Jacob was learning, and that by itself, that's enough. A church does not become a place that regularly sees people achieving freedom from sin because they have a good building or enough money or good preaching or music or teaching. We could have every beneficial tool in ministry on the planet. But if we did not have assembled a group of people who are led by God's Spirit and who are growing in His Word, none of that other stuff matters. So don't make the mistake of misunderstanding your struggles. The problem is, and always has been, sin that needs a perfect Savior. And, and, and if that is not fundamentally the battle of your life, nothing else is going to matter. Whatever, whatever status or quality of life or security or any sort of measure you can put on the circumstances of your life, not going to matter a hill of beans if your life is not fighting spiritual battles where your relationship with God a growing, active relationship with God is first and foremost. Jacob finally learned it here. Jacob finally learned it. It's, it's easy to read Scripture and say, man, that guy, that guy was, 
How, why did he do that? <laughs> Until we realize how often we've all done those sorts of things. And fought the battles of our lives with the wrong sets of tools. It's incumbent on us as the people of God to be witnesses to the truth that He alone saves. Your flesh can't do it. And true weakness in the flesh is strength in the Savior when we understand that His work, in the Christ, His work on the cross alone for us brings us to that place of victory. Father in heaven, we are people who, who struggle and strive using the wrong tools. We want to be people, Lord, who fight spiritual battles as you've called us. That we would do business with you. And that reconciliation with one another and the world would come out of the truth that you alone save us. That you're a God of grace who's perfectly lived life in the person of Jesus Christ is what gives us victory. So Father, forgive us for our fleshly striving. Forgive us for hammering at nails when you've given us a whole different toolbox. Enable us to be people, Lord, who don't continue to misdiagnose, but who go back to the one solution that you've given us. Help us to seek your face and to have greater faith in what you alone can do for us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We simply want to extend an invitation to you if you are a baptized believer in Christ and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you be a part of us at First Christian Church to place membership with us. If you would like to in the waters of baptism, to publicly declare for the first time your faith in Christ by being baptized, we'd like to invite you forward. If you're looking for someone with whom you can pray and, and talk about your strivings and, and doing life with God at the helm, then we'd love to have you come and pray with you about that as we stand and as we sing. Just as I 